Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM, and we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts in the known universe. You can check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com and become a subscriber. Uh, we're really pleased today to have an old friend. He's not so old, but he's a good friend. Sean Carberry uh, is with us today. Sean, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. Now, I promised Sean an effusive introduction, but I'm <laughs> going to be very concise as I, as I can be. I met Sean uh, in 2004 when he managed my first disastrous campaign for the United States Congress. Uh, he was great. We had a good time. Uh, that didn't go anywhere, but it really did set the stage for my next successful campaign in 2006. He taught me an awful lot. Uh, Sean is a man of many, many talents. Uh, I won't talk too much about his musical career, but uh, he has worked um, in various capacities, all having to do with uh, international politics, international policy, and especially security matters. He's a graduate of the Harvard University John F. Kennedy School of Government. Um, he has worked as a senior correspondent for America Abroad Media. He was an international producer of media and radio uh, and an international correspondence in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, he's worked as a defense reporter uh, and uh, was a senior writer editor in, at the Office of the Inspector General in the Overseas Contingency Operations of the University of the United States Department of Defense. That's a it's a long title, but a very very important job. Uh, he was a managing editor. Uh, uh, of the quarterly reports on overseas contingency operations uh, at the Department of Defense. And he has now uh, founded um, his own company to provide foreign policy and national security analysis, as well as writing uh, about foreign policy and national security. Sean, what's really interesting is uh, you published a, an extensive and very readable article uh, in The Diplomat. Uh, in January of 2015, titled Afghanistan Destination Uncertain. Uh, the headline said the transition is complete, but Afghanistan's future looks uncertain to say the least. And I think those words uh, ring as true today as they did then. And I guess I want to start by asking you, from the beginning, was there a clear objective in terms of our engagement and involvement in Afghanistan, was there ever a clear definition of winning? So if you go back to the very beginning, we're talking, you know, really October of 2001, when uh, military intervention started, I do think there was a, a clear objective at that point, which was to get Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Um, it was in response to the 9-11 attacks. They were in Afghanistan and the Taliban, which was the ruling, uh, ruling party, ruling entity in Afghanistan, had given them uh, sanctuary there. And essentially, the United States said to the Taliban after 9-11, give us these guys. 
the Taliban didn't. So the U.S. launched uh, military action against the Taliban, uh, ultimately to get to Al-Qaeda. So there was a a clear sense that the perpetrators of 9-11 were in Afghanistan, the Taliban was essentially standing in the way, and so the the U.S. went in, knocked down the Taliban, and eventually uh, dismantled Al-Qaeda. Obviously, it took, uh, you know, another 10 years to ultimately get Osama bin Laden, but Al-Qaeda was, was, you know, degraded to the point where it wasn't a threat. So initially in 2002-2003 timeframe, you, you can argue that the original objective had been accomplished. Uh, what happened was then decisions about how to kind of tie a, tie a bow or not around things at the time. And, it, you know, the new government of Hamid Karzai was stood up. And uh, when the Taliban uh, had basically melted away uh, later in 2002 and 2003, you know, all indications were that there was an opportunity to, to sign a deal then uh, that would have some kind of uh, resolution to it and put the Taliban in some place. Um, you know, certainly they, they were not in a position to control the country, but uh, there, there was a potential for a deal. Um, and ultimately, the, the Bush administration, uh, heavily driven by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld at the time, uh, was opposed to anything like that. And that's when that 2002-2003 timeframe, things were pretty critical. Obviously, you know, it's well known that the, the U.S. government started to focus on Iraq and starting to put energy and resources towards a, uh, an intervention there. And uh, at the same time, Afghanistan, there were efforts to then start doing uh, what effectively turned into nation building, which is what the Bush administration had said on day one they were not going to do. So that's when it really started getting murky and laying the groundwork for for how things played out uh, after that. And from then on, the mission, what winning was... Uh, continued to evolve, morph, and um, you know that that's when things continued to get more and more difficult. And you know, I I argue, and in things I've been been writing more recently, that um, you know the real problem is that from that point, the the initiatives, the goals, the desires for Afghanistan were not in keeping with the reality on the ground of what you had to work with. And you're talking about a country that was one of the, the poorest, least developed in the world, uh, some of the highest illiteracy rates. And then suddenly there was this international campaign to turn it into a modern functional democracy with health and education and equality for women. And later on, the effort to stand up a uh, substantial military. And while those might be appropriate goals on paper, they simply weren't in tune with the the Afghan human capital and what you had to work with on the ground, uh, which is a large part of the reason why 20 years on, uh, you still don't have clearly functioning government and institutions and military that the Afghans can run themselves today. Let me let me follow up if I can, I because I there are two and really I there are two questions I want to ask. First of all, did the United States simply ignore, as opposed to learn from the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, which uh, 
preceded our involvement and where they spent considerable time, lives, and treasure. Um, and number two, how did our the, the push of the Bush administration to focus on Iraq affect uh, what what we were doing in Afghanistan in that crucial time frame that you've outlined of the say the 2002 to 2004 because when I first ran for Congress we were already talking about Iraq uh, we weren't even then very much focused on Afghanistan and frankly I won election in 2006 uh, because of the pushback in the United States against the war in Iraq yeah so so on, on the first question you know, the Soviet experience, um, it's informative in certain ways, but obviously there are very different circumstances than uh, what the U.S. was dealing with when it went into Afghanistan. The underlying thing that's been raised for, for years and years and has been the, you know, the, the hallmark of Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires is that any external force, whether you know, it was the, the British in the 1800s, the Soviets, um, Afghanistan resists foreign entities uh, attempting to meddle in control, um, you know, overthrow the, the government, et cetera. So you know, certainly a lot to, to learn from the Soviet experience just in terms of how complicated Afghanistan is to deal with and the fact that at that time you had, you know, a major power with military technology that had uh, invaded Afghanistan and yet couldn't bring the, the country to its knees. Um, so it, it is a country that, that, that does fight aggressively, uh, it resists aggressively. The difference with the U.S. experience is that it was it was toppling a government in Afghanistan that did not have uh, complete legitimacy or popularity within Afghanistan. And so there was a lot of internal resistance, and that's how the U.S. tapped into some of the other anti-Taliban groups and warlords uh, when they launched the invasion, and that helped to, to topple the Taliban. But then... Uh, you know, after that, the, the other part of it, and I, I think it's important to, to note is, again, it ties to this period of 2002 to 2004, is how do you then bring some sense of, of unity inside Afghanistan? The Taliban was overthrown, and then you have all these different power brokers and warlords going back to the Soviet days who all have different notions of what the country should look like and what peace they wanted of it. And so, you know, from the outset, it was very difficult to get to a unified Afghan establishment. And so you still had power brokers and militias and different groups that had to be dealt with, uh, you know, reconciled. So, so that's sort of simmering along. And then, you know, to your second question, the U.S. starts putting its attention elsewhere and, uh, it was a significant change of, of resources. And I, you know, at the time this was happening, I was uh, a producer for the NPR station in Boston on one of the national talk shows. So we were doing daily programming, looking at what was going on at that time and the, the run up to, to Iraq and what was going on in terms of getting the security council resolution against Saddam Hussein 
all of the the messaging, all the efforts. I mean, really, it was from shortly after the time the Taliban fell, all you really started to hear about was Iraq. Uh, so it was, you know, there was less money. There were fewer troops available for, for Afghanistan. There was less political will uh, going into it. And there was a lack of clarity on what the what the end state in Afghanistan was, uh, and everything became Iraq. And you know, as you noted, I mean, part of the reason that that you and I, Paul, crossed paths was in 2004. I, you know, I'd been uh, a political journalist covering the the New Hampshire primary, and I personally reached a point where I was so uh, frustrated with the the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq and what was going on there that I wanted to do something about it and saw um, trying to get the, uh, the Bush administration um, kicked out of office by democratic means in 2004 was what I felt would, uh, would help resolve that. And so I, I you know, got into the game and, and you and I crossed paths. But yeah, it was, it was a rock was everything from then until, you know, really... It was after 2006 when the Taliban had started their resurgence in Afghanistan and people all of a sudden realized that, hey, this, this other thing's still going on and um, yeah, there's a problem there. Was there ever a point where we could have done something different, the United States, that would have meaningfully changed where we landed today? Because what you lay out is kind of a painful mental history, I think, for all of us who lived through this period. We all understood the objective in 2001, 2002, and it was pretty quickly realized, at least in the sense of taking down the Taliban. As you say, we didn't get Osama bin Laden for another 10 years. And then I remember very well the thinking at the time, I was a congressional staffer at the time, you know, and we were kind of in the Charlie Wilson's war era of thinking, you know what, we made this mistake last time. We, we intervened when the, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we, through the CIA, we, we, backed the, uh, we backed the groups that essentially became the Taliban later. And then we didn't finish the job. We just kind of let go the rope and the Taliban fully took over. There was a sense that, okay, this time we're gonna do it a little bit better. And that made some logical sense at the time. So I guess my question is, was there ever a point, no matter how we define the goal line, no matter how we define winning, where we could have said the objectives have been met, or we could have said, you know what, we're going to do this one defined thing differently. We tried the surge. <laughs> we're going to try this one defined thing differently. And that would have ultimately where we landed here in 2021, we would have looked back and said, that was the turning point that made the difference. Yeah, Matt, I, I think to me, and what I've been talking about to this point is really that moment was kind of 2002. Um, I, I do think that had the United States, the international community, the, the new you know, Karzai uh, interim government in Afghanistan, uh, basically sat down with the, the remnants of the Taliban at that point and come to some sort of terms and, and resolution there uh, where, you know, the Taliban sort of got, got something out of the deal. I mean, at that time, you know, all accounts were that they were, you know, they, they were tired. They had fought a bloody civil war to come into power, 
holding power was certainly not an easy thing for the five or so years that they were uh, running Afghanistan. And at a certain point, a lot of them just wanted to kind of melt away and wanted to go back to just, you know, farming and, and living their lives. So to me, the failure to seize that moment and deal with a, a at that point, defeated adversary uh, was, was the pivotal moment. And everything from then on just started to, to percolate uh, you know, as as the U.S. is focused on on Iraq, the Taliban start regrouping, start thinking about, well, you know, what do we want? They have sanctuary in Pakistan. Um, they're seeing things in Afghanistan still aren't necessarily great. Um, and so they, they start to rebuild. And, you know, you could argue that if the a peace deal with the Taliban in 2002 didn't happen, that maybe in 2003 and four, uh, if the U.S. had had a larger force there, that would have been enough to keep the Taliban from deciding to, to attempt to, to resurge. Um, but I think everything from there, it just, it just sort of kept creeping in, in the wrong direction. And then by the time the Taliban was resurging, uh, there was a realization, well, there really wasn't an indigenous Afghan security force to combat them. Uh, so then there was sort of a, a quick effort to sort of spool up the development of an Afghan security force. Again, a lot of these things happened just, just too late. And I think the inertia uh, had, had moved to a point where the Taliban was, was going to make an effort, and they did. Um, and then, you know, the international community increased the mission against the Taliban. Even when you get to the surge, and you're talking at that point, you know, really 2009, 2010, uh, when the surge is, is happening, um, you know, that point, eight, nine years after this whole thing started, uh, even that wasn't enough to bring the Taliban to its knees. I mean, it certainly knocked them down. There's no question about it that uh, after the surge, the Taliban was weakened, but it was not defeated and not at a point where it was willing to sit down and negotiate some type of deal. And that, you know, that was sort of the goal that kept happening, you know, starting with the surge. I think that's where you start to see this notion and feeling that there probably isn't a military defeat. So the goal is to knock them down to a point where, they're negotiating from a position of weakness and, you know, people come to a political settlement that they can live with. Uh, and since then, it's just been really, you know, the Taliban has continued to survive and then to resurge to a point where their leverage today is as great as it's ever been um, since 2001. And so, you know, back to your original question, I, I don't see, I don't see a real silver bullet in a way after sort of 2002, 2003, where you could say, I mean, other than with the surge, if you said if they had surged, you know, 250,000 troops in, which is honestly what some of the generals were arguing at that time, that if you're going to do it, you have to, to really do it. And 250,000 troops for an unlimited time, as opposed to the 18 month time frame of the surge. Um, could have knocked the Taliban down to a point where they felt, okay, 
you know, we, we got to cut a deal at this point because, you know, we're not going to get anything if, if we don't. Um, but I, I don't think it was ever realistic that, that the United States would consider going in with that level of force. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think it, it's, it's a series of, you know, I look at it as every time there was an opportunity to make a choice about Afghanistan, sort of the wrong choice was, was made. Um, and it, it just kept compounding from there. So, you know, that's sort of, sort of where we are. The big, the big question, the million-dollar question, did President Joe Biden make the right decision when he announced that he was going to have us pull out fully from Afghanistan? So I'll put it to you. Oh, Paul, you, you want to break into the question? I, I want to break into the question. I'm gonna you're you're, you're going to let you're going to leave that hanging out there. All right, point of order. You know, order. What, you know putting putting off a decision on that question is sort of part and parcel of everything that comes to Afghanistan. So let's go ahead and do it. We're yeah. we're gonna, we're going to delay this. We're going to kick the can down the road. On I'm I'm, I'm kicking ahead. I'm kicking it down the road. That's by the way, this is just a ploy to keep our listeners hanging on until we answer <laughs> the real question that's on everybody. If we ever do. Go ahead, Paul. What's interesting, in the last segment, Sean was talking about the the surge. And I just want to quickly reflect on my time in the U.S. Congress because um, I I was an early supporter of Barack Obama. And when it came time to talk about surging in Afghanistan, um, I was put to a really tough, tough decision. Uh, I had access at the time to classified information. That's one of those things where even today I can tell you, uh, I could tell you what's in there, but then I'd have to shoot you. So (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what was in the classified information. Um, What I can tell you is after spending a couple of days in the, in the secret room with a minder, reviewing all the reports uh, that I could get my hands on, I was very nervous about uh, the proposal uh, to surge troops into Afghanistan for the reasons, Sean, that we talked about in the last segment in terms of what had gone by the wayside, what kind of, as they say, what water had gone under the bridge, and what the current situation was, what the capabilities was of both the Afghan government in 2009, 2010, and, uh, and, and the security force uh, forces. Uh, in the end, um, I was lobbied really hard by the White House. And uh, I frankly put my misgivings aside and said, I'm gonna support uh, the president that I worked so hard to elect. And it's an interesting, It's an interesting perspective because I think that for many members of Congress who voted for the surge, we shared serious misgivings about whether or not it was going to work and whether it could work and whether it was big enough and whether any surge uh, could ever uh, really accomplish anything, even with an overwhelming force, but as a political matter, uh, early on in President uh, Obama's presidency, with a lot on the line, with a collapse of the economy, trying to recover from that, with healthcare working, and with this significant foreign policy matter in which he had decided to listen to the generals to some degree, a number of us decided to support this despite our misgivings. And here we are now with his vice president 
as president, having made a surge, having been through another, what, 11 years since then um, with a diminished force um, trying to negotiate with the Taliban. And now here comes President Biden. And he was a voice back then who was really quite, uh, quite concerned about whether or not a surge was going to do anything because he was a person who had spent a lot of time with foreign countries with foreign leaders and uh, was generally, he thought himself, to be very clear-eyed. So he's now ordered the withdrawal. And we'll go to Matt's teaser question. What do you think? Is it the right thing to do? So short answer, yes. Um, just just to get that out, and let let me explain then some of the 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 details um, and reasons why Biden, President Biden, really didn't have much of a choice. Uh, one of the things that, that you know people need to keep in mind is this was not a unilateral decision that he made out of thin air. This was a decision based on the February 2020 agreement signed by the previous administration and the Taliban. So, you know, for, for listeners, uh, just quickly on this agreement, in at the end of February 2029, the United States and Taliban signed an agreement. And the gist of it was that the Taliban uh, was supposed to uh, guarantee in various ways and various actions that Afghanistan is not ever again a haven for terrorists who threaten the security of the United States. And there were some other actions the, the uh, Taliban was supposed to take, such as starting peace negotiations with the Afghan government. So if the Taliban under that agreement met its conditions, the United States agreed that within 14 months of the date of that agreement, it would withdraw all troops and military personnel, so contractors, DOD civilians from Afghanistan. So that deal was in place when President Biden took office. And so leading up to now, the, the decision tree that he had to work with only had a couple of branches. And it was essentially follow through the agreement and get all U.S. military personnel out by the end of April, which was the 14-month the window under the agreement, or renegotiate with the Taliban for some extension of that, some other set of conditions, uh, or ultimately say the Taliban is not in compliance with its terms and obligations under the agreement. Therefore, the United States does not have to meet its obligation. So that, that was really about the range of, of options that President Biden had under, under the agreement. So you know, I do think a lot of the criticism and pushback about this um, has been sort of lacking that grounding set of facts that yes, you could argue in an ideal world, the United States would like to keep some small contingent of troops in Afghanistan purely for counterterrorism purposes, that it's easier to keep an eye on potential Al Qaeda or Islamic State in Afghanistan by having some US forces there. I don't think anyone would argue that it's, you know, it's not easier and it's not better from a counterterrorism standpoint. 
But those arguing that President Biden should have kept troops in indefinitely or on a longer conditional basis are ignoring the fact that there was an agreement and violating that agreement does have consequences. And the Taliban had made it clear that if US forces were in Afghanistan after the end of April, they would resume hostilities against US forces. And you know, there've been people I've read, you know, op-eds and commentaries from people saying, look, for the last 14 months, US forces haven't had any casualties in Afghanistan. So that's all the more reason why it's a, you know, it's an environment where they should stay to protect America's national security. And those arguments ignore the fact that, well, under the agreement with the Taliban, those hostilities ceased. The Taliban stopped, for the most part, attacking U.S. and coalition forces, and U.S. and coalition forces stopped any operations against the Taliban, except in extreme cases of helping defend Afghan forces that were under attack. Uh, so again, you know, there, the ideal notion of saying U.S. forces should stay, but then there's the reality of saying, okay, there's, there's an agreement, and if you're not going to follow the agreement, then what? The Taliban were not open to, to renegotiating the terms of it from, from all accounts, and, and the U.S. Uh, wasn't necessarily looking to do that either. So you know, I do think that this has to be viewed in the context of you know, this limited set of, of options of how things could go forward. And technically, President Biden is violating the agreement by not getting the troops out by, by the deadline. Um, now, you know, there's reporting that there are some concessions that appear to be going on with some more releases of Taliban prisoners uh, and some possible delisting of Taliban members from terrorism lists and things like that, that the Taliban has wanted. And so, We'll see if that's enough to satisfy the Taliban uh, to not resume attacks as as U.S. forces draw down. But uh, you know, again, I, th I think people need to to ground this discussion about withdrawing troops in the framework of what had been set in motion by the previous administration. And you can bet for certain that if if President Trump had won re-election, U.S. troops would be out of Afghanistan by now. You know, the agreement was to run through the end of April. Um, so, you know, they would have been out already. And, you know, this discussion would be uh, of a very different nature. But, uh, you know, this was a deal. And, you know, again, as we were talking earlier, you can look back and decide, was it the right deal? Was it a good deal? Um, you know, there's a lot to debate about that. But, it was a deal that was signed. It was agreed to. Both sides have been moving out accordingly. And unless you're going to cut a new deal, that's that's what sort of governs where things are right now. I want to ask you about the future. Obviously, it's impossible for anyone to have a crystal ball and say with any certainty what's going to happen next. But there's a concept in medicine of giving a differential diagnosis. Here are all the things that could be going on and that could happen down the line. Do you have a differential diagnosis? on what's likely to happen next? What are the different scenarios that could unfold over the next five or 10 years in Afghanistan? And do you have any sense of whether one is more relatively likely than another? 
Yeah, so I, I've felt for a long time, um, I guess, well, I'd say a long time really since the, you know, 2014, 2015 transition to the current phase of the, you know, Operation Freedom Sentinel um, that is focused on building up the Afghan forces and just doing counterterrorism as opposed to combat against the Taliban. I mean, Taliban's been growing. And, uh, you know, they've, they've gained territory, they continue to, uh, to have strength, they can gain the forces they need to keep fighting, they've been able to overthrow, uh, you know, some small district centers over the years. So that's, you know, it's one piece. The Taliban has never shown any signs of, of relenting. And frankly, I've always looked at it as they want it more. They are, they are more motivated. I think what hasn't had enough attention is the Afghan government side, the, Af the government and then the broader circle around the government of the various power brokers. And as I've looked at things over the years, the problem has been that that side has been far less unified than the Taliban side. You know, the Taliban's not entirely monolithic, but they're their command and control, their ability to keep their followers moving in a direction uh, is far better than the Afghan government. And I, I remember, you know, in 2013, 2014, interviewing different uh, Afghan, you know, government members and then people outside of government. And there was a range of perspective on how things should play out. And there were some that were stridently anti-Taliban that said, we will fight, we will fight any deal we will not agree to a deal where there are concessions made. Look, if they want to go through a political process and run for elections and people vote for them, we will honor the will of the people. But we're not going to agree to a deal where we give them X number of cabinet positions or things like that. We will continue to fight. And, and so that, to me just showed, and again, I'm a little bit of a, a negotiations geek going back to, to grad school, but I'd look at everything through the standpoint of negotiations. You know, what do people want? Do they have an overlapping set of, of desires that they can come to agreement on? And who has the leverage? And I think the Taliban has had increasing leverage and the Afghan government and power brokers have really not come to circle their wagons to agree on what they want, what kind of outcome they want. And uh, so that that weakens their, their hand. So to get back to, to your point, I think I have viewed it as sort of a certain inevitability that the Taliban will become a major, if not dominant force in, in Afghanistan again. And it's sort of a question of the timeline of that and the extent to which it's done through negotiations versus violence. Um, I think that the position the, the international community has been in with the number of troops they've had there and investments in Afghanistan have only been able to slow that process, not stop or reverse it. And so the question is, do you keep investing in buying expensive helicopters and military equipment for an Afghan military that can't even use these things still on its own? Um, do you invest in, in a government that still is not building its institutional capacity where there's still rampant corruption and things like that? Um, you know, they're not going to stand up and if they don't want it more than the Taliban wants it more, then why should the international community continue to put lives at risk and huge amounts of money in, into the situation? So, uh, you know, that's that's where I look at it. The range is that it's 
you know, the Taliban is, is, is coming back to be a political force in Afghanistan. As I said, it, it's a question of how quickly, to what extent, and how violently it, it happens. Hopefully, that this moment where the Afghan government realizes, hey, that you know, the international forces are leaving, that, that finally forces them to circle their wagons and and you know bridge their divides and come up to a more unified position and say, hey, you know what? The pressure's on us now to deliver for the Afghan people. And we've got to circle the, the wagons, as I said. And, and one optimistic sign is actually one of the people, um, Amarullah Saleh, who is, uh, he was one of the big uh, Tajik you know, anti-Taliban people that I was referring to earlier, who told me in, in sometime, you know, 2014, he said, like, you know, the expression he used, if the Afghan, or if the Taliban is allowed to come back in through the window, we will fight. Um, if, if they run for elections, then, you know, we can work with that. Uh, so he was one of the hardliners who was, you know, a potential spoiler to, to negotiations and a political deal with the Taliban. And he recently tweeted saying after the, the announcement of uh, the withdrawal, that this is the moment for Afghans to basically step up and fight for our country and sort of almost saying this is a good thing to, to happen. And, you know, I think obviously there are a lot of Afghans who are trying to put a positive face on things, but I do think a lot of them are recognizing that, um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time complaining about everyone else. Uh, the, you know, Afghan elite, they'll blame Pakistan. They blame the U.S. for bringing corruption. They, you know, they blame everyone else, but don't take responsibility for the fact that they haven't exactly done you know, right by their people and used all the, the money and investments from the international community to best use to, to build a, a country. So uh, hopefully that they, they do see this as a moment, they step up and really focus on a political process with the Taliban. Uh, but there's no question there, there, you know, there is a risk of, of the country um, devolving back into its factions and, and civil war. And it's a very real prospect. You know, I, I don't know what percentage odds I'd put on it, but that's certainly within the range of, of possible trajectories in the short term. So, uh, you know, over the 20 years that we have been involved uh, in Afghanistan, uh, we went from uh, fighting the Taliban, um, now they've resurged, we, to negotiating with the Taliban, um, conferring on them some international legitimacy as a political force. Has the Taliban changed in that 20 years? Uh, are they, is it a different group? Is it a political entity? Are they still a force as radical in terms of its treatment of women, its desire to erase Afghanistan's culture and history as we saw over the past 20 years, are they different? That's question one. And question two, um, what can the international community do in your view to try to, to push the, the, the ball into a, into a smoother playing field? Uh, now that there will not be any military presence? So on on the first question, I mean, really the answer is the, the jury's still out on that. Uh, the, you know, there, there's evidence indicating that they have moderated their views. Um, and there's evidence that, that questions that. 
I think the sense is that yes, they you know they always have been a political entity. You know, they were a, a government, uh, so the, you know they do have a, a political approach to things, and so they do have to look at things from the standpoint of what gets us to our desired end state. And so if putting out some statements that indicate some moderation on some of their past views is helpful to get people uh, to be more comfortable with, with negotiating with them, uh, then certainly the, you know, people are going to do that. Um, and so it, it, it really is unclear. The, the Taliban is smart enough to know that it's in their interest to signal a little bit more flexibility on some of the hardline aspects of the past, on treatment of women, on music, culture, various things like that, their system of justice. Uh, but there are plenty of people and people who have lived through it who firmly believe that it's a little bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing, that uh, you know they're going to talk the talk to get a deal. And then as soon as they're in a position to, they're going to try to go back to the same hard line uh, conditions that, that they were in. So um, I, I, you know, no clear answer on that, but a lot of reason to, to be skeptical um, about where things are, are going. Uh, in terms of the international community, you know, certainly one of the, the arguments about back to the Soviet example is that, you know, the Afghan government didn't collapse, um, you know, immediately after the Soviets with, withdrew. Uh, Afghanistan sort of collapsed in the Civil War really when the money ran out, which was a couple of years later. So that's one of the arguments that's, that's being made now is that while the withdrawal of troops and military assets is is ongoing and appears you know unlikely at this point that that's going to change the international community still needs to maintain diplomatic and development engagement and support with with afghanistan i mean the country can't fund its own government it can't provide services so the extent that the international community continue to help prop up the government uh, is, is going to be critical because that's needed for legitimacy with the people that helps with leverage and negotiations with the Taliban. So, you know, the notion that, that this withdrawal is cutting and running and abandoning Afghanistan isn't really the case. It's a military withdrawal. The international community still has a lot of money to support Afghanistan and leverage that comes with that and can pressure Afghan leaders uh, to step up and, and try to do something. But, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy by any stretch. Uh, but hopefully everyone is tired enough of violence that they look at this as an opportunity to really focus on finding a political solution that no one's going to be happy with at the end of the day. You know, like any compromise, no one's going to get with everything that they want. And it is going to be tough for human rights community and Afghan women um, to deal with. So, as, as I say, there's, you know, there's no ideal outcome here. The journalist Tom Ricks called his book on the war in Iraq one word, fiasco. If you had to choose a description for our 20 years in Afghanistan, what would you call it? Misguided. Well, that's probably about as good a place as we're going to be able to leave it. Uh, Sean Carberry, thank you so much for running us through this incredibly complicated, fraught topic. I, I think we'll all be crossing our fingers that uh, we're on the more hopeful side of the spectrum for the uh, future that is to come. Uh, this is Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL. 
and available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson with former Congressman Paul Hodes, my co-host. And please feel free to check us out at beyondpoliticspodcast.com and to subscribe to this podcast. That really helps us out. So does your ratings and reviews. 